0: well hey everyone what is up welcome or welcome back to my channel my name is austin this is gospel simplicity a place where we're passionate about the beautiful simplicity and transformative power of the gospel hey if you're new to the channel or if you've been watching for a little bit or if you're like the majority of people who watch these videos but aren't subscribed maybe consider subscribing to become a part of this community. I would really appreciate that. And if you want to just really go all in, go ahead and click that notification bell. It will force Google to show you these videos and it will show it to more people. So Google will be spreading the good news about Jesus, which is pretty awesome. So do that if you'd like. I want to say uh, real quick before we jump into this interview with Dr. Ed Sichensky, I think you're going to love it. I had an absolute great time talking with him. I want to make one point. I can't believe I didn't do this. I always try to make a point of breaking down some of the big ideas here and making sure they're accessible to people who maybe aren't familiar with them, who don't have a background in theology. And we did a lot of that, cr- clarifying the timeline and all of this. But I realized about halfway through, it was too late to ask at that point. I never had him actually translate Filioque, which is Latin for you. So you could have gone through this entire video and been like, what is this filioque thing they're talking about? For those that aren't familiar, filioque is Latin for and the son. In the original creed from 381, 325 originally then kind of finished at 381, uh, it said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and then goes on. Later, as we talk about, there was an addition of who proceeds from the father filioque, which is and the son. And that's kind of a history of this divide. So if you're wondering what filioque means, it means and the son. It was put in the creed about the procession of the Holy Spirit, not just from the father, but from the father and the son. We'll break all of that down except for the actual meaning of that word in the video. So now you know. Also, before we get into it, I wanted to thank my sponsors as always, and my patron subscribers and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially my patrons who support me monthly. It means so much. It helps me do what I do. It really, I mean, I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you so much. Your generous support means the world to me. If you want to become a patron, you can do so using the link down below. Also, there's a new Gospel Simplicity website because of patrons, and so you can go to gospelsimplicity.com and find links to stuff and more about me and all that kind of good stuff. Be sure to check that out. Anyway, for my sponsors, thank you so much to Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. And they do this by creating beautiful Bibles that will cause you to slow down, read more contemplatively, and really take in the Bible in a different way. I think you'll really enjoy it. I know I have. And if you are looking for a Bible, you're looking for a beautiful coffee table Bible or just something to spice up your Bible reading, be sure to check them out at kindredapostle.com. And when you do so, be sure to use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. Well, with all that being said, I hope you guys enjoy the interview, and here it is. Today, I am joined by Dr. Edward Sashensky. Dr. Edward Sachensky is professor of religion and Clement and Helen Pappas professor of Byzantine civilization and religion at Stockton University. He's the author of several books, including Orthodox Christianity, A Very Short Introduction, The Papacy in the Orthodox, and what we'll be discussing today, The Filioque, History of a Doctrinal Controversy. Dr. Sachensky, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It is, uh, I it, get invited anywhere. It's a pleasure. So, it's, a, it's always a pleasure to talk about theology.
0: Oh, well, the pleasure is all mine. I really do appreciate it. I've really benefited from your books, and I think my audience is really going to enjoy this today. The filioque is such a big topic, and I think it's one that a lot of us have maybe heard about, but we're not super familiar with the background, and so hopefully this will be helpful for people today. I know I have a lot of people listening and watching who are trying to figure out the differences between Orthodox and Catholicism and understand this divide in the Church, so hopefully this will be helpful for them. But I want to ask you, how did you get interested in writing on the Filioque
1: So it goes back to a course I had in graduate school on medieval theology, and I was reading reports from the Council of Florence and there's this incident that takes place at the Council of Florence when they suggest this letter of Maximus as a solution to the filioque controversy and the E says if you accept this we can sign with no reservations and the Latin say no thank you we can't do that and then the the author of the book it's it was the Council of Florence by Joseph Gill just kind of moves on and i said what what's this filioque controversy and why is the text of maximus so central to it so i wound up writing my final paper for the class on that and eventually that got turned into my dissertation my dissertation was on the use of maximus the confessor and his theology of the filioque at the council of florence and then when i submitted my dissertation and got my doctorate Uh, And I was looking for the first project. You know, So many people just kind of take their dissertation and try to turn it into a book. And I I did want to do that. And so it was Father John Bear who said, well, why don't you just write the whole history? And because I was just going to write a history up to the Council of Florence. He said, no, if you're going to do it, just write the whole history beginning to end. Nobody's done that, at least not in English. And so I was like, all right. And that's that's where the book came up. I mean, it was just one of those things where a little paragraph in a in a book turned into the next six seven years of my life.
0: Wow, that's so interesting how those things happen. And I always like hearing how people get interested in certain research areas and how one class maybe sparked this. And I love how Father John Barry just said, "Write a book on the whole history, as though uh, that was an easy task. I'm sure that was daunting. (laughs) And uh, you mentioned actually, and you open your book with this great quote by Yaroslav Pelikan about Dante reserving a a special circle of hell for theologians to research the procession of the Holy Spirit. So what is it that that makes this topic so complex and makes writing a, a complete history of this so difficult?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, you're you're talking about the inner workings of the Trinitarian God. So, in terms of just complexity, uh, and you're talking about an issue that really does touch the very heart of theology. I mean, this isn't an, a a tangential issue. I mean, this is who we believe God to be. There has been a temptation, I think, to view the filioque simply as another tool in this political, cultural war between East and West. And I, I've never really bought into that, because I do believe that for all concerned, the issue was so central, who we think God to be, that there, if there was a suspicion that the other side had the wrong faith, that really did touch the very center of theology. And so when you read the people who are writing about this, they are convinced at the center of their being that the other side has got it wrong, that they're, they don't understand God correctly. And I think that that's what generates a lot of the heat in the argument. The fact that for the better part of 1400 years, both sides, you know, Latins and Byzantines, have gone at each other hammer and tongue over this issue, and that they've brought in historical arguments, patristic arguments, biblical arguments, uh, logical arguments. Uh, and sometimes that these arguments are all completely valid on their own terms. That's what makes it so fascinating. If you read Aquinas on the Filioque, and you say, wow, that makes a lot of sense, until you read, for example, a Byzantine critique of Aquinas, and you say, yeah, that makes sense, too, given the theological and intellectual environment from which it's coming. Right? They're not scholastics. They don't understand Thomas's language and his logic. But in its own on its own terms, Thomas makes perfect sense. And I think that's what makes the debate so complicated to, have, to make each side see where the other is coming from and the tradition out of which these two theologies sprang.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of putting it. And something I really appreciated about your book is you present the the logic of the arguments from both sides. And that I think oftentimes in these topics, especially today in the circles that I run in and this small niche of the Internet, there's a lot of polemics around these issues that, oh, like they're just completely wrong on this. And it doesn't. How could anyone believe this? But I I really think that you give a a very charitable uh, presentation of, hey, here's like how maybe the West was approaching this. And according to their logic, this is why this would make sense. And here's how the East was approaching it, given their approach to theology. Not that you're impartial. I I know you have an opinion on this, ultimately. But I thought the book was very fair on that. And I appreciated that. Uh, Was that a a difficult thing to do? Or like, what, what inspired that? Was it Was it hard to not just go full force on this is who's right?
1: I did, because I didn't want to do that. Um, I, there had been over the last centuries enough works trying to convince the other that he or she was wrong. And I was like, why would I write another book like that? It's been done. It's been done by people who do polemics far better than I. But what nobody has done is just sit down and say, "All right, let's just look at the argument." Um, again, there are other works on the history of the Filioque, uh, Peter Gemeinhardt and Bert Oberdorfer. There, there are some, but they're in German, um, and they're they're very long. And so the hope was to make this book manageable in length, objective in tone, uh, readable. I, mean, I have a friend. He's a history professor at Missouri Cordia University in Wilkesbury, and his job in in everything I've written is to make sure that a non expert could read these books and understand them. And he's been he's been great at that, Dr. Alan Austin, a friend of mine. And so the goal, you know, if it's if it's clear, if it's objective, um, and it presents just the then people can use that information and kind of take their own decisions on. Who is and isn't right and you're right, I do have an opinion i I come from a religious my own religious tradition. Uh, I am Orthodox, and so that's not a secret. It was originally, and I must admit when the Filioque first came out, I had a lot of fun watching people online try to debate whether I was Catholic or Orthodox because there were some people who came out, oh, he must be a Filioquist because he's he really seems to support it. other people said no he's definitely orthodox because he doesn't really buy into and i was having a lot of fun and you know it kind of showed me that i had done my job well i had presented it so objectively nobody knew where i stood and that was but uh you know i do have an opinion and i you know i come from the orthodox tradition and but that doesn't mean i can't look at what Catholics have written on this subject and say, all right, let's try to understand what they've said on their own terms.
0: Yeah, that is really fun getting that feedback of people not knowing where you came from. I think that really is a great testament to what you're doing and having accomplished what you set out to do. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I first came across your book on the papacy, which maybe one day we'll have a conversation on that. And that was what really struck me about your writing, is that you were so fair. And that's something that I really value on this channel is it being a space for people to be able to investigate yeah. these things and come to their own conclusions on them. And so I'm, again, so happy to have you here. One thing I want to circle back to is you mentioned that this is something that was incredibly important. This isn't just a political issue. This is about the inner <laughs> life of God. And I can, I've noticed that when I talk to some people about this, I've even sat in classes where it's essentially presented as this was some political divide between the East and West, and mm-hmm. they used this to, you know, kind of sort out other differences that were really underlying it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is that today we struggle to see this as something that is as important as the people then saw it to be? Is there something that's changed in the way we look at theology? I know there's people who find this very important, but I also know that many people struggle to see how one word in the creed could really be this impactful.
1: Yeah. Um, so when I was defending my dissertation, uh, one of the people on the board, uh, Dr. Telly Papanikolaou, who was a friend, he his question was, who cares about this? Like, who really cares anymore about the filioque? And I said, well, I do, uh, but I think also more people should care. And it, and it goes back, actually, to something I'd read early in my graduate studies, Carl Rahner's book on the Trinity where he said that for most Christians today, the Trinity was something of an afterthought that if you remove the doctrine of the Trinity from most from uh, theology, that you wouldn't have to change most theology of the last 200 years because so little work had been done on the Trinity. Now, that's changed since Runner wrote that. Uh, And I think there has been kind of a renewal in Trinitarian studies. but. I think there really is something to that. That we don't really think we talk about God a lot, but in uh, a lot of traditions, we really don't put a lot of emphasis on God's inner life as Trinity. Uh, I was once asked by my my priest, you know, is there a difference between the prayer life of Western Christians and Eastern Christians because of the filioque. Because if all theology is ultimately leads into prayer, then is there something about the way each side prays based on their thinking? And I, I had to think about that. And I, I came to the conclusion there is, uh, because I think that in the West, there is a tendency to pray to God. And if you go, for example, to a Catholic mass, although the Eucharistic prayer is Trinitarian in structure, right—the you know prayer to God, you know, through Christ in the Holy Spirit—there isn't a lot of explicit mention of the Trinity. If you go to an Orthodox church, uh, references to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—the Trinity, one in essence and undivided—and uh, you know, mentions of the Trinity are bountiful, plentiful. So I think there is, because uh, because of its emphasis, Trinity, and each person in that Trinity's place within the structure, uh, I think there is a difference in how East and West praise. And that's, I think, where I've seen it the most clearly.
0: That's really fascinating. And I love that your priest is asking that question. Is this tied to the life of prayer? And I think these are the questions we should be asking about these things that can sometimes come across as just things for theologians to quibble over that have too much time on their hands. But when people see that... We, this, we do.
1: It's- <laughs> that, 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 that's another question altogether
0: oh man but i i love that there is that connection and it's something i've seen just anecdotally in my small amount of experiences the the emphasis on diversity within the the unity and the trinity like on the persons and the trinity and the east versus um more of a, a focus like you said on on god and there there is trinitarian aspects but it's less um individualized and I know we want to be careful there with how we use those terms and whatnot um, and that, that could be a whole thing but that that's interesting that you you noted that connection and I, I'm glad you made that connection I want to dig in a little bit to kind of the history and the background of the Filioque and why this is a question that is so difficult in many ways and in your book you start with the New Testament data and growing up you know as an evangelical at a Protestant uh school as a theology major are our predisposition is always to look at the the scripture like this should be able to settle it and i think that's everyone's first inclination is what does scripture say about this but you show in your book that it's a little complicated that it's not as simple as here's a verse this settles it and the other side's simply reading it wrong why is it that there's a, a difficulty here is there there not as much clarity as Either side would maybe like to make out, or what is it that's what, what's in the New Testament data that allows for this amount of controversy?
1: Well, I mean, the temptation I think very often is to look at the the biblical data through the lens of kind of the post-Nicene developments in the Trinity, right? So we in that period between Nicaea and Chalcedon, a little later we come to some degree of clarity about how we understand God. We don't want usios and, you know, three persons or hypostases, And then we read the scripture and it all makes perfect sense because we go like, oh yeah, that's the, the spirit, the, the, the logos, it all makes perfect sense. But when you actually look at the biblical data before you get to Nicaea, it is very unclear it is not as clear as we would like and so when paul speaks about the spirit of the sun for example what what is it is this something different the spirit of the sun from the spirit of who's giving it um and, and that that passage the spirit of the sun of course later became one of the big proof texts for the latins um when in John, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, is this an act of the economic Trinity? Is this an act of the imminent Trinity? Would Jesus have known the answer to that question? Like Jesus, by the way, is this an act of the imminent or economic Trinity? Would he know the answer? You know, those kinds of questions. Um, and, But of course, Looking back on that from our post-19 perspective, we're like, oh, yes, no, no, he's talking only about this, an economic action of the Trinity. And there is a difference between the economy and the theology. And this, of course, is one of the big critiques of the East to the West. Augustine reads that text, for example, and says, well, obviously, when if Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit, then Jesus must help be a producer of the Holy Spirit. He, that's he's revealing in time what has happened in eternity and the east says well no you can't really always do that there is a difference between economy and the and theology here so yeah the, the biblical data can cut both ways uh and i think it would be foolish to say well it clearly supports the latin or the byzantine position because then you can take another text and say yeah but what about Over here, that seems to say something different. Now, the fact that the affirmation of Nicaea, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, is taken directly from Scripture, right, has always been one of the stronger Byzantine arguments for their position. It says in Scripture, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. So, why would you want to tinker around with something that Scripture seems to be very clear on?
0: There's a lot there, and I want to begin to unpack this a little bit. One thing I want to come back to real quick for those that might not be familiar, because I think it's really important, you mentioned it several times, this distinction between the economic and the imminent trinity. Could you define that for people? Because I think that's going to help them understand part of the divide between East and West.
1: Sure. So the economic trinity is God, as God has revealed himself in time, in the economy of salvation. And so, uh there's this idea of the father sending the son who is a giver of the spirit. It is the spirit who enables us to say Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And so there's this kind of in history, this kind of Trinitarian pattern. The question is, is that Trinitarian pattern in the economy of salvation also the way God is in himself in the it's called the imminent trinity so if it is god the Son, the spirit is does the sun have any kind of priority uh over the spirit now obviously everybody believes that the sun is co-eternal and there's we're not arians or anything like that but at the same time for the Anti Aryans of Charlemagne's court, for example, it was very important to emphasize that for Jesus to be co equal to the Father, he had to be able to do everything the Father did. And if the Father brings forth the Spirit and the Son is equal to the Father, then the Son must have some role in the production of the Spirit. And this was not simply in the economy, like the sun giving the spirit, but actually in God as God exists outside of time and space, in the imminent Trinity. And so this this is kind of the, the question. Whereas the West has been, I think, historically more comfortable seeing the relationship between the Trinity as It's revealed itself in time and the imminent trinity. The East has always been a bit more hesitant.
0: That's very interesting. And I want to follow up with this. I know this could be a whole rabbit trail, so I don't want to go too far down it. But why is it that there's this difference in approach? Or I guess put another way, what's kind of the rationale for saying the economic and imminent might not be quite the same because we have kind of the economic revealed in scripture, but I know there's a bit Mm -hmm. more of a hesitancy to speak of God in himself and the imminent Trinity. From your perspective, why is it, or maybe if you'd rather just embody the perspective of these early Greek fathers, why is it that they would say, let's not be so quick to kind of equate those two, to jump from one to the other?
1: Well, even in the the way the Trinity has revealed itself, there are differences, right? So interestingly, when you read, for example, the nativity narratives, it's clear that the father sends the spirit to bring about the generation of the son. And at the baptism, it is the father who gives the spirit to the son, which seems to give the spirit a priority over the son. Um, and there's... Again, not a temporal priority or anything like that, but co-equal, co-eternal, et cetera. But at the same time, so you can see that depending on what part of the scripture uh, you're reading, you can things of the relationship between the persons. And so I think... It, At one point, there is this emphasis in especially among the Greek fathers on the what Basil called the pious doctrine of the monarchy, this idea of the father actually being first uh, and the the sole archae, the sole head, the sole source of the Trinitarian life. And I, I think... I think in the west by and large although they hold to that same doctrine there's always been a little bit more in the in the west than in the east this starting point not necessarily with the father and then figure out where the son and the spirit come from but the starting point being god and ha- figuring out how the three persons in God are related. Now, that distinction has historically been overemphasized, as if their two approaches were very, very different, and I would not want to do that. But I do think it's fair to say that there are trends in that direction, especially in different writers.
0: I think that's a helpful point you make there, that we don't want to overemphasize it, but that there are these overarching trends. And I wanted to ask, when do we begin to see this, right? So I think for most people, we have this idea of, you know, we have the the New Testament, the apostles, they're spreading the, the gospel, they, they move out into the world, and then we begin to see this kind of divergence between East and West. But when is it that we could point to that we really see the East and West, specifically on this issue starting to think in different ways here that are going to end up causing trouble in how they um, reconcile their their theology of the procession of the Spirit. Hey, we'll be right back to the interview, but first I want to tell you about another sponsor for today, and that is Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors that exist to help you get the help you need you know one of the first youtube videos i ever made was called you can have jesus and a therapist too and what i wanted to do in that video was draw out the fact that so many people are struggling with mental health and the last thing we want to do is make it more difficult for people to reach out to get the help they need by creating this stigma around it it's something that i'm really passionate about and think we need to end in Christian circles, and that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. Their counselors all will be counseling from a Christian perspective, and you can connect with them from any country in the world. They have counselors that speak many different languages. And hey, if it's important to you to have a counselor from your specific tradition or background, they can do their part to try to pair you up with one of them as well. All of their counselors are licensed with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with these counselors in a variety of ways. Four, in fact. You can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, or messaging. All of the messaging is secure. If it's between scheduled sessions, you'll receive a response within 24 to 48 hours. If this is interesting to you, if you think this would be helpful for you or maybe a loved one, I'd encourage you to go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, first of all, you'll get 10% off your order, and you will be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours hours. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity to be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours and get 10% off your first month. Faithful Counseling costs $260 per month, which gets you unlimited messaging with your counselor in four 30-minute sessions. But again, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, you'll get 10% off that first month. Lastly, Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line or hotline. You can find one of them at www.crisistextline.org. Please do so and reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Well, thank you all so much and I will let you get back to the video, but if you want to check them out, again, faithfulcounseling.com/gospel simplicity. The link is in my bio and in the pinned comment. Well, back to the interview.
1: Yeah, uh very often the guilty party uh is is kind of labeled as Augustine, right? Uh, because Augustine is coming up with models of the Trinity. Now, there are predecessors, Victorinus, uh, I think, would be one. But, you know, he looks at the Trinity and, and tries to come up with the model of the Trinity and understands it as kind of the lover, the beloved, and the Holy Spirit emerging from them as the bond of love joining them. In which case, you would see the Holy Spirit uh, kind of coming from both as the bond of love joining them. And then he says, well, does that make sense? He goes, yes, it does make sense to say that the Holy Spirit comes forth from the Father and the Son. And he says, that's the way it happens in time. Uh, that the, the, the Holy Spirit comes as a gift to the Son, and therefore, it makes sense to understand. Now, when Augustine is writing this, he's spitballing, right? He's trying to come up with images. And what happens, of course, as Augustine takes this role in the West as the father of fathers, people begin to quote Augustine almost like unto Scripture. And they say, well, if Augustine taught this, it must be true. And very quickly, you see, especially among Augustinians of the West, this idea, well, of course, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Then, of course, you get to the Carolingian period, uh, just during the reign of Charlemagne, where they're fighting the adoptionist heresy in Spain, which is kind of an outgrowth of Arianism. And as I said earlier, they're trying to emphasize the equality of the Father and the Son. And so they take what Augustine wrote, the this idea that the Holy Spirit comes forth from Father and the Son, to prove the equality of the two in the production of the Holy Spirit. And then they actually feel the need to make sure that is in the creed. So the creed, when it is written at Nicaea slash Constantinople, it's the Nicene constantinopolitan creed, really. Uh, it says, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. At some point, and again, there's a lot of debate here exactly when this happens. In the West, the the addition of he proceeds from the Father and the Son, Filioque, becomes part of the Western creed and the West begins to feel the need to defend that insertion, uh, one on the anti-Aryan grounds, but also on the, the idea that they genuinely believe it to have been there since the beginning. Now, this is where the problem of transmission of texts comes in. They They genuinely believe that it's not, <laughs> they didn't add it, the East must have taken it out. If it's not in their creed at some point they removed it. And we see this accusation spring up rather early, and of course, it's that accusation in 1054 uh, when Cardinal Humbert makes it against Patriarch Michael Corullius that incenses the Byzantines, because Cardinal Humbert says, well, for, like, enemies against the spirit, the Numatomakoi, they have removed the filioque from the creed, and the east just goes ballistic and says, of course we didn't remove it, you added it, and it's it's terrible, and you know the war of words really gets going. Now, it had already started with Phocius uh, a few centuries earlier, but it's really in 1054 that you start to see the the arguments really heat up.
0: That's really helpful, and I want to zoom out just a little bit from there for people that might be a little rusty on their church history chronology. So you gave us kind of that that end point there at 1054 with the uh, formal excommunication between uh, Rome and Constantinople, with the filioque playing a large role in this. But then you mentioned the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, which is a mouthful to say. Um, So we've got (laughs) the original creed that's like 325, then 381 Constantinople.
1: 381, right, is is, uh, Constantinople.
0: And then so Augustine's coming a little after that, right? When he's talking about his models of the Trinity. That's early Mm -hmm. 5th century when he's Trinitate. So somewhere between there already, he's feeling the liberty to talk about the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Son, even though the the ink, if you will, is still wet on that creed, only Mm -hmm. maybe 20, 30 years. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: When? Well, first, why do you think that is? And then you said it's complicated, but... When was it? You talked about the Carolingians. Um, I'll, I'll let you give the date on that. What's that? Like eighth century. But so we see this development. When do we like roughly see that the filioque um, is coming into the creed? Is it kind of somewhere between three hundred eighty and seven hundred something?
1: Yeah, I mean seventh, eighth century. Again, you could you could. There are debates about. Because we have these texts where the versions we have have it included. The question is whether or not somebody later went in and included it or whether it was originally in those texts. And there are people argue about these things. Uh, so it, it starts showing up in Spain, probably in, in some of the councils of Toledo uh, around the seventh, eighth century. And so by the time you get to the Carolingians and their kind of late 8th, early ninth century, they they believe that it's part of the creed and they believe it to be necessary for the defense of, of Christ's divinity against Arianism. Um, now, Augustine, the question with Augustine is how, how aware was he of the East developments in terms of Trinitarian theology? How familiar was he, for example, with the Cappadocians? And by a dissertation director, Father Joseph Leinhart, he actually wrote an article about this uh, a while back, Augustine's familiar. Like how often does he actually quote Basil and Gregory and, and Gregory Nyssa, and things like that. Uh, and it, it seems like he knows them and respects them, but it same time doesn't seem to have a huge knowledge of their trinitarian core because their own trinitarian writings are written in the context of other battles so basil's writing against the pneuma and then you have the writings against eunomius and then you have the writings against those who say that there are you know three gods so they're trying to come up with these ideas of the trinity in the context of certain I, I like to call it this you know, the scylla and charybdis of of trinitarian theology on one hand you have this temptation to modalism that god is just one person who does three things you know in the morning he's the father in the afternoon he's the son and then sometimes he acts like the holy spirit and on the other you have this temptation to tritheism which is you know god is three gods who just really get along very well and that the church especially I think the Cappadocian fathers, they're trying to navigate in those narrow waters between those, t- three, you know, those two heresies, uh, kind of like Odysseus in, in the Odyssey. And I think they, they end up being very successful in doing that. But at the same time, you know, in the West, there's a whole different set of arguments um, and a whole different set of opponents that they're writing against and I think that also colors how each of these characters is read.
0: Yes, that's that's really interesting how they're I appreciate that you're kind of contextualizing them a bit. That all of our our theology doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of oftentimes it's a response to, or we're articulating our theology in response to contemporary circumstances. If you're writing against people who believe there are three gods, you're going to articulate the Trinity in a certain way. If you have other intellectual Uh, resources at your hands if you're conversant with say aristotle and the scholastic Mm. period you're going to formulate your arguments a little differently or if you're you know fighting modalism i think these are all important things to have the conversation in the conversation about theology i one thing i want to ask about here and i want to get to maximus in a second but there's at least this span of time where the church is existing with the filioque in its creed and the filioque not in its creed at least there's no formal excommunication between the the heads of these churches how did the church do that or is it simply that they were able to do that while they weren't aware that they had two different creeds and then once they realized it it wasn't going to work. Was there a time when they they knew that the East and West were different on this and they were essentially okay with that? Or how did that essentially uh, pan out?
1: Well, uh, I think in general, you could say ignorance was bliss. For the most part, they get along because they're not really quite sure what's going on. We have the example of Maximus. Maximus has this letter to Marinus, where Marinus uh, uh, Rome has added the filioque and people in the East are upset about it. And Maximus writes this letter to Marina saying, no, no, no. When they say this, this is what they mean. So it's okay. And then we don't hear any more about this until Phocius in the ninth century. And... But when Phocius when becomes aware of it, he's livid, and the debate really begins, because for Photius, there's a couple issues at stake. I mean, obviously, he believes that if you start giving to the son hypostatic characteristics that belong to the father alone, so only the father can be the cause and the source in the Trinity. And if you allow the son to be a source, or a cause of the spirit, then that's a, that's a huge Trinitarian problem. But he also, there's this issue of, listen, we, this creed was an ecumenical creed. It was composed in council. You can't tinker around with it on your own. We were never consulted. And so there's, there's always been, I think, with the filioque, two separate issues. One is the theology behind it. And the other is the liceity of its introduction. And even as late as the Council of Florence, those are treated as two separate issues.
0: That does add a certain layer of complexity, that it's not just theological, that there is this aspect of you can't uh, unilaterally add to the creed. And so you have both of these dynamics, and I think it's a temptation to only highlight one and downplay the other. For instance, I think we look back today and say, this was really just about, you know, the the East was mad about a power grab that the West made. But then I think there's also a temptation to say, no, this wasn't about that at all. It was only about theology. And so I, I think it's important that we recognize both there, and I appreciate you doing that. One thing I want to come back to here is you mentioned Maximus the Confessor. Now, you talk in your book about how, as the debate kind of goes on, there's This growth in the fact that the West, as they're defending the Filioque, is using their own list of patristic citations that are mainly from the West, and they have kind of their list, the East has their list, and they're not necessarily talking to each other. But Maximus is in this Mm -hmm. interesting position where both sides want to claim him as kind of a champion for their viewpoint. How is that, and, and how does that kind of shake
1: out? Well, so Maximus writes this letter. And Maximus, of course, <clears throat> is an Eastern monk living in the West. He has made uh, common cause with Pope Martin against the Monothelites in Constantinople. So, as reason to be uh, on good terms with the Romans and to try to, in a sense, accept what they're saying about the Filioque in good faith. And they present to him these texts that seem to support the filioque. And they seem to ins- uh, you know, assure him that in no way are they actually making the son a cause of the spirit. But they're trying to show that while the father brings forth the spirit, the spirit nevertheless flows through the son as a means of showing the eternal relationship between father and son. And he says, as long as we understand the filioque is saying that, there shouldn't be a problem. So that's what the text says. And uh, if you're a Greek, you look at that and say, well, Maximus says that the son is not a cause. And as long as the West can say that the sun is not a cause, then we don't necessarily have a problem with the Filioque. And that's actually the Greek position at the Council of Florence, right? So at Florence, the Greeks say to the Latins, listen, if, if you agree with Maximus and the sun is not in any way a cause of the spirit, we agree with you, we're, we're good. But of course, by that time, by Florence at least, The Latins had made the sun on some level a cause of the spirit. But they said, well, listen, Maximus didn't have a problem with the Filioque. The Filioque obviously has been in the creed since the 7th century, since Maximus attests to it. So this kind of shows the compatibility between our view and your view. So you should just accept that... uh, you know, our view is orthodox because Maximus says it is, and this is why it becomes a popular proof text for the Latins. So here you have both sides looking at this text seemingly as a proof text for their own position. Rather than see it as kind of a, a text that can bring the two together, each use it in order to defend their own position, and if there's, I think, a uh, point to my dissertation which was on maximus at, at florence it was that instead of reading subsequent uh, instead of reading maximus in light of the subsequent tradition we should try to read the subsequent tradition in light of maximus if we read thomas aquinas and you know the the scholastics and the others in light of what maximus said the filioque did didn't say it would be better than trying to read Maximus lens. And the same is true of the East. If you try to read Maximus as a proof text for Phocius, that's probably not a great way to do it. But if you try to understand Phocius through Maximus, I think it's a much more productive way in terms of getting both sides to understand their common heritage.
0: And that's a good hermeneutical principle in general I think that we're often tempted to kind of anachronistically read these texts in light of later controversies whether that's the filioque or whether that's you know reading scripture in light of certain developments now not that we want to set aside the tradition I know for sure that that's not what you're arguing that you know we should just set all those things aside and we don't need them but it is important that we don't try to ask questions of a later generation to a previous generation and in a way that's not quite fair to what they're doing and i i think that's a great point in that you know when these people were coming together at florence they were coming at to maximus to uh to support their side rather than how is maximus speaking to this and maybe could this be something that's unifying and if if that's an unfair characterization you know feel free to correct any of that
1: no no you're absolutely right um and it's funny because Maximus, there's a similar text when Maximus speaks about the papacy. That's mm-hmm. that's the same the same dynamic has happened where you know Maximus is allied with Rome against the Monothelites in Constantinople. And so he says, Well, the church of the Romans is you know, the church we all must look to, like unto the sun. And of course, he's this text has been used by subsequent generations of Catholics to say, aha you know, Maximus is definitely on board with the universal jurisdiction even in the 7th century, right? So they're using Vatican I as a hermeneutical lens to read Maximus as opposed to trying to understand the tradition of Maximus on his own terms, um, which I think does some violence to the the text.
0: Yeah. And so to zoom out again for those that might be a little... um, Little rusty on some of their church history. You gave us Maximus, seventh century. He's kind of trying to understand both of these as kind of an ally with the pope and speaking to the east, kind of assuaging their fears of what's happening with the creed there, and saying like we're we're uh, what they're not saying he's a cause, and trying to kind of hold the two mm-hmm. together. Now Florence, that's a, a good bit after that. Can you give us a bit of a date for Florence because I think it's really important what's happening at Florence and just. What What's going on at Florence? This is an ecumenical council, and what are they trying to do? Why is this such a big part of this history of the Filioque?
1: So the both sides had been trying to solve this issue. And when I say solve this issue, basically trying to get the other guy to admit they were wrong. Doing this for centuries. By the 15th century, the Byzantine Empire, uh, such as it was, was reduced basically to the city of Constantinople. And they were desperate for Western aid and the deal had always been from the Western Western point of view. If you want aid, you can have it, but only after the unification of the churches. So this has been kind of when you look at the history of East-West relations between, especially between the Council of Lyon in 1274 and uh, Florence in 1438-39, that's always the negotiations for union were always on those terms. You you come, we'll talk, and then once there's union, you know we can we can give you aid. Now for the West, they really didn't want a dialogue on the issue. The, the popes always wanted the East submission on these issues. But in their desperation, the East, one, they needed the help. So the Emperor John VIII brings them to Florence, Ferrara first, then Florence. Uh, but the East is convinced they can still win the day. They can still convince the Latins that the filioque is wrong. And so Florence is really the last great attempt to solve this issue before the 20th century. And they bring forward all of the material that had been gathered basically since the 9th century in Phocius and they they throw it at each other. And essentially what happens is the the Latins have more stuff to throw. They have more proof texts from the Latin fathers and seemingly from the Greek fathers than than the Greeks do. And eventually, the overwhelming weight of the patristic evidence kind of convinces some of the Greeks, men like Bessarion and Isidore of Kiev, to kind of acknowledge that the Latin position may be correct. And then the emperor kind of drags everybody else with them. To say that it was an ecumenical council with real ecumenical dialogue, as we understand that term, would be wrong. There was free exchange of ideas, but it was never with the point of trying to come to a common understanding. It was always to try to win the day. And when the Greeks kind of realized they wouldn't be able to win the day, it was simply a matter of surrendering to the Latins. And they did, and they signed the document. And the, the final statement of Florence was a complete recapitulation of the, of the Latin position. That the Greeks just subscribed to, except Mark of Ephesus, who famously refused to sign the union and became kind of the hero of the anti-unionist movement in those last years of the Byzantine Empire. But what is important about Florence is that it, it is the last attempt. And there is kind of a great silence from the 15th century to the 20th century on the issue. I mean, there are one or two attempts, writers, uh, but for the most part, there really isn't a chance for the two sides to come together and genuinely talk about the issue uh, until the late 19th and then early 20th century.
0: I want to get to that in a second because I think it's a very valuable part of your book and grateful to Father John Baer for encouraging you to go past Florence and to talk about what happens because I think a lot has happened mm-hmm. in the last uh, two centuries or so, which you highlight mm-hmm. in your book. For those that aren't familiar, though, they might be a bit confused in that for them, you say, okay, so at Florence, the two sides come together. It was fraught with issues, but eventually the, the East signed and kind of capitulated to the, the western position and then there's silence on it and they might be like well yeah there's silence on it because it sounds like they came together they, they signed the document didn't this work now that's not how church history goes but for those that aren't familiar can you kind of fill in briefly why that signed document didn't kind of bring about a union between the east and the west
1: yeah uh here you get into a more complicated issue about the reception of ecumenical councils, right? So from the Catholic perspective, Florence was convened by the Pope. it was ratified by the Pope, and the there were representatives of all five of the patriarchies there. So the ecumenical patriarch, uh, Joseph II was there, actually died at the council. The other three patriarchs had sent representation. So on many levels, you could say Florence had all of the prerequisites for an ecumenical council. But from the Easter perspective, what it didn't have was this idea of reception, right? It, it, as soon as the delegates got back to Florence, they, they all said, you know, we have betrayed the faith. We have become Azamites and, you know, we re, we're sorry we did it. And the Union, although it was promulgated, never really caught on in the East. And then, of course, eventually it was just rejected uh, at a meeting of the, of the Eastern Church. So while the Catholics still number for our Florence among the ecumenical councils of the Church, For the East, it isn't uh, because the faith of Florence was never received as the faith of the Church. Now, I know, and I have some acquaintances in the kind of community, kind of internet community. They they love to debate this issue of the reception of ecumenical admit because if it's if there aren't clear criteria, then how can you tell a true council from a false council? And the East, the idea of reception can sometimes be a bit fuzzy. Whereas the Catholic system is very clear, right? It's called by a Pope and ratified by a Pope. That's a council. And everybody just has to accept that. So um, yeah, I, I. so I think you could say for the East, Florence is a failure that almost succeeded where for the West, it was a success that failed, right? It had, and that's, I think, the assessment of Joseph Gill, you know, uh, in his famous history of the council, that it was was a council that should have really been successful, except Mark of Ephesus kind of scuppered things and ruined everything. Whereas the East said, God, how close we came to betraying the faith at Florence and how close we came to surrendering, uh, you know, orthodoxy just for a few extra cannons and ships to save Constantinople.
0: That's a whole fascinating topic, and I imagine we could do an entire episode. I'm sure there's plenty of books in that council alone of the drama of it and what happened and how it ended up playing out. It's a really fascinating point in this story. I hate to do this, but I I do think we're going to fast forward a bit from there up until now. I think people kind of have a bit of an idea of what happened there, and they can chase down that rabbit trail afterwards. There's plenty of study for them to do if they're interested. Mm. But lately, there has been a renewal of interest in the Filioque, and famously, I believe it was Pope John Paul II recited the Creed with the Ecumenical Patriarch uh, without the Filioque in it, and that was a, a pretty big moment. Where are we at in terms of the conversation today? What has gone on recently, and is there any signs of hope that we might be moving closer together uh, that is the east and the west might be moving closer together on this
1: so the good news is i would say yes um and i think the hero of the story is once again maximus the confessor because i do think what both sides are doing is exactly what they didn't do in florence which is to try to understand their subsequent trinitarian traditions in light of maximus so the west has tried to see this affirmation of the sun not being a cause and trying to understand their subsequent Trinitarian uh, tradition in light of that. But I also think that the East similarly has kind of tried to move beyond Phocius's no. They've, they've spent a long time repeating that. But in Maximus, there's also this clear affirmation of the kind of flowing forth of the spirit from the sun. And there are some Eastern theologians like Gregory of Cyprus and Gregory Palamas who actually took that insight of Maximus and ran with it. And I think that more Orthodox today are willing to understand the filioque as an orthodox teaching if it teaches about the eternal flowing forth of the spirit rather than the original coming into being of the spirit. And so uh, I think because both sides are looking more closely at Maximus and in the Vatican clarification that was issued on the Filioque in the 1990s by John Paul II, uh, and the CDF did use Maximus kind of as this kind of key hermeneutical text. So I, I think on that level, theologians on both sides are really closer than they have been for centuries in solving the issue. The problem as I see it is that the Filioque is still in the creed, right? It's it's still there. Uh, the, and... You know, there have been, as you mentioned, these occasions where the Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI did the same thing in services with the, the ecumenical patriarch, recite the creed together without the filioque. But if you go to a Catholic parish on any given Sunday, it's still in the creed, and it's, it's almost like a scab. It just, every time an Orthodox hears it, it's like picking at a scab, and it just hurts, and you, you'd wish it was gone. And there have been a number—I would say the vast majority—of Catholic theologians who have studied the Filioque have made the suggestion that uh, it's it's about time it it left the creed uh, that that both East and West should recite the creed as originally written at you know Constantinople in 381, and that that would go a long way toward healing of memories and it would allow the theological dialogue to finish their work without bringing in this other issue of the of the place of the filioque in the creed so on the the level of theology i think a lot of optimism unfortunately there has not been a lot of movement on the part of rome itself to suppress the filioque from the creed Uh, despite the the, the pleas of Catholic theologians to do that. Um, so, you know, one could hope, uh, had hoped originally when the Catholic Church in the United States did their recent retranslation of the liturgy, that they would take the step of simply, like if they're going to change the wording of the creed by retranslating some of the words, maybe this would be a really good time just to, to drop it but they didn't, and it's still there. Uh, Most of the Eastern Catholic churches have dropped it, which is a hopeful sign, but the Latin church is not. And some Protestant churches have dropped it, but not all.
0: That is a really important step, I think, in this conversation of, it's one thing to say that we're essentially getting close on the underlying theology, which is Mm. huge and something to be celebrated, I think. But it's another thing, of the very tangible sense of division, in that on any given Sunday, if the creeds being recited, and uh, you know, at say, uh, Catholic Church A on this street corner, mm. it's being recited one way, and then down the you know down the block a couple ways at the local Orthodox parish, it's being recited differently. And of course, both groups have this idea of the the way that we the pray or the way that we uh, the the liturgy. It shapes our theology. These things aren't separate that they really should come together. And I think that would be a a very big step to take the filioque way out. And it would be interesting to see how that could be done. And I think it could be done without without impinging upon a Catholic doctrine of infallibility um, to say, but I imagine they could say that maybe the theology is right, but having it in the creed is unnecessary, unhelpful. I'm not sure. I'm not necessarily the person to speak on that. But right. that
1: is... Which is exactly, interestingly enough, the position of Pope Leo III back in the 8th uh, century and when, you know, when he said, listen, I believe in Augustine's thinking on the filioque, but I don't want you tampering. He told this to Charlemagne, like, I don't want you tampering with the creed. And so Leo III set up two shields in Rome with the creed, one in Latin, one in Greek, without the filioque, kind of as a way of saying, listen, the creed is inviolate. And it was you know, only 200 years later during the imperial coronation of the Emperor Henry IV um, that it did get added and in Rome. And I, that's, that, of course, brings up this issue of the Pope's place to add and subtract things from the creed, which, of course, from a Catholic perspective, he has. From the Orthodox perspective, he doesn't have.
0: Right, which again is kind of the subtext of this conversation. It's, it's right. another layer of this that adds a, a layer of complexity to the whole dynamic. I want to ask one final clarifying question before uh, we wrap up here. And that is, from a Catholic perspective, if you can, and you do a good job, I think, in your book doing this, of trying to embody that even though it's not necessarily your position. But from a Catholic perspective, for a long time there was the position that, no, this is original to the creed. And that's kind of one way that the filioque was defended. But eventually, there's the recognition that mm, the filioque was not in the creed in 381. But yet there's still a desire to defend its orthodoxy. When do we see that happening? Because to me, that seems to be a pretty major shift from saying this is original to, okay, this isn't original, but it is orthodox. Is there a time we can pinpoint that? Or is that kind of just a development?
1: Um, so, I mean, the recognition that the the filioquy was added to the creed it comes pretty early. But then, of course, the the argument is, and you see this in Thomas, well, the Pope, as teacher of all Christians, has the right to add things to the creed. And so, if it was added, then the question becomes, was it listen i mean if it's if it's orthodox then of course it was valid for the pope to add it and this is actually the argument of florence they the east begins by saying well let's talk about the licity of the addition and the west says no if let's go back to the orthodoxy because if it was orthodox then of course it was all right to add it and so it it does become two separate issues um, now it, the recognition that it wasn't originally in the creed, like I said, it comes pretty early. I mean, Humbart makes the mistake of, of thinking that the East had dropped it, but most others soon after that are pretty aware of the fact that it, it's something that gets added in the West over time. And of course, the East is very keen to remind them of that. Right, uh, I'm sure. the fact that, well, we've never had it in our creed. Uh, we didn't take it out. So it's not a matter of you know, that it's always been there.
0: I imagine that would be a big part of the argument. Thanks for that clarification. I think that'll be helpful for people. There's one final question I want to ask that might seem a bit strange. We've been talking about how important the filioque way is. You've made a case that it, it even affects our, our prayer lives and that this isn't just something for theologians with too much time on their hands, although there are theologians with too much time on their hands and maybe that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> but... Is there a chance that there's ever, so there's a danger of making too little of it and saying, uh, this isn't really that important. Let's just kind of gloss over the differences. Is there ever the opposite danger? Is there the danger of making too much of the filioque? And here I'm thinking specifically of maybe like internet polemics around this. Can Can we kind of make more out of this than there is there? Or is this something that we should kind of be pulling out all the stops and saying like, this is a huge issue we need to focus tons of time on this and this like this is anathema between us is there a sense in which you can go to the opposite pole
1: well um i i don't think there's It's a matter of making something less important i think it's how we approach things so the internet is not always the best place to settle theological disputes um it's sometimes a, a good there are forums like this where you can have good theological conversations and there are other you know similar places but what i've experienced in terms of some of those discussions are people simply throwing the same proof texts out that they were throwing out in the 11th century i mean that and it's remarkably unhelpful it's remarkably unproductive if you're orthodox and you're going to simply re, you know repeat the arguments of photius now i'm not saying anything against the arguments of photius mind you but if that's that's your position and all you're going to do is repeat it then it's very unlikely that your opponent is going to say, oh, well, you know, after 1100 years, maybe Focius, we realize Focius was right and we're going to admit we're wrong. That's not going to happen. Uh, And the same thing on the other side, if you're a Latin, if you say, well, we're gonna just throw the same proof text we threw out at the Council of Florence in the hope that the weight of it will convince you that we're right, it's gonna be very unhelpful. Um, So, which is why, as I mentioned at the beginning, I didn't want to do another one of those. I didn't think it would be very helpful. Uh, But if we can have these discussions, I think we can realize that on this very important issue, we are not as far away as we thought we were at the Council of Florence. Um, That while there are, I don't think it's simply a matter of it being a linguistic distinction. I think there are, But I do think that using Maximus as kind of the key hermeneutical text, that we could come up with a common understanding of what we believe the Trinity to be. And that would be incredibly important, I think. I mean, uh, you know, and if we could have the Nicene Creed say what the Nicene Creed originally said, I mean, the Nicene Creed is, along with scripture, one of the few kind of documents or or, um, places that all Christians can kind of buy into. And to have it be a source of division as opposed to a source of unity is a tragedy. And if we could look at the Nicene Creed and pray it together and understand it together, then I think that would be incredibly important. I don't, I don't think you can say, no, it's not an important issue. It is an important issue. I think the problem with the guys on the Internet is that they're, they're hoping for a solution uh, you know, that isn't there anymore. It was the solution that Latins and Greeks hoped for for a thousand years, and it didn't work. So why, why keep going at it?
0: I think those are really encouraging words to kind of end with, that we we are closer together. And this thing that should be a source of unity, it's a source of division, but, but there might be a chance we can come closer together on this. But we're not going to do it by just rehashing old arguments. Let's assume that both sides have, have read their tradition mm-hmm. and they understand where these things came together, uh, Or. More, more they went apart, and mm. let's let's carry the conversation forward, which is kind of the task of theology. Not that we're reinventing theology, but we're faithfully handing it down and making sense of it in light of where we're at today. I think that that's really helpful. I'd, I'd love to just let you uh, close with anything you'd like to share, as well as uh, please let people know where they can find your work or uh, anything you're up to that you'd like to share. I'll be sure to link to whatever you'd like there.
1: Uh, Well, uh, so the Filioque, when I wrote it, um, it was 11 years ago, it came out. I guess the question was what to do next. And the next book was going to be a book on all the other issues that divided East and West, the papacy and the use of unleavened bread and beards and purgatory and everything else. And then I decided I couldn't do that all in one book. So I, I decided I was going to write a trilogy. And so the filioque became volume one, the papacy and the orthodox, which did the same thing as to trace the history of debate from scripture to the modern day. Was volume two. And now I'm in the process of writing volume three, which is going to be on beards and uh, unloved bread and purgatory. And I would uh, the hope would be that these three books together would be kind of a resource for people on both sides of the East-West divide to kind of go to look at their common history and say, all right, these are the issues that divided us. How do we kind of move forward? Uh, That we in a sense move forward best by looking back first. And so I think, you know, I would encourage if you you are interested in the history of this rather tragic division between uh, you know the Catholic West and the Orthodox East, uh, that that kind of maybe these would be books that would be interesting and maybe even helpful.
0: Wonderful. I know they've been interesting and helpful to me. I'm sure they will be to others, and I look forward to volume three coming out. People can find links in the description to those uh, two existing volumes, and they are well worth the investment. And if you want to kind of be introduced and chase down the footnotes, there are plenty of notes in these books for you to go check out the sources and see where all this is coming from. I think they'll be really helpful to you. Well, Dr. Sashensky, thank you so much for being here. This was an absolute pleasure. And thanks to all of you who are watching this whenever it is in the future that you watch this video. I do not take your time lightly. And I'll close as I always do by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And as always, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that's We'll change the world.